Hi there and welcome to Scale, a podcast for modern media. I am your host Stuart Ritchie, the founder and lead developer at Powered by Coffee. Powered by Coffee is a web and software development team focusing on technology issues facing the media today. Scale is a podcast about how technology impacts the media and how the media impacts technology in return. Everything from ad tech and privacy to hosting and content management. We're interested in what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow and where we might end up in the future. Today I am delighted to have Matt Bennett with us. Matt is an advisor to technical agencies like us, but he has a background working with ad ops and publishers, not in the game anymore, but certainly a wealth of experience and he's very kindly agreed to talk to us today. How are you doing, Matt? You having a good day? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm all right. It's always a good day when I get to talk to you, you know, always <laughs> enjoy it. Ever so kind, ever so kind. No, thanks for having me on. My... My introduction there was a little bit, a little bit vague, not vague intentionally, but do you want to give us in your own words, kind of your own background, tell us how, how you're here, your own experience as much, as much as you can? Yeah, sure. So I guess I've been involved with the web professionally since 96 when myself and my father started what we'd now call a web development company. You know, the, I think the terminology was quite much like the rest of the industry, the terminology was quite young and unformed back then. So I spent 25 years running agencies. About the last 10 of that, we became very focused on publishers and monetization. So we worked with high traffic websites, helping them make more money out of advertising. That started off as quite a simple thing to do. And over that decade, we became uh, sort of entirely focused on that. That was that was everything we did by the end of it. And obviously, the job had become quite a lot more complex during that time. Finished that last year. I've sold up. I've got out and I'm doing different things. As you said, I'm working as an advisor to sort of quite a, a range of companies now involved in the web space. Great. How are you finding the transition away from agency life? Yeah, it's not it's not the vision of lying on a yacht drinking cocktails that a lot of people think exiting is. It's really interesting now. I think you know, we're in an industry that moves so quickly and then you get very busy doing the thing you're doing and it starts passing by. And I'm really enjoying the chance to learn about some of the stuff that's happened uh, while I was busy doing other things or is beginning to happen now. So it's nice to be able to do more different things rather than just having to do, be very focused on doing one thing well. So I get to indulge my magpie tendencies and, and go after all the shiny things, which is great. That sounds delightful. I'm not going to lie. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. See where you kind of end up. There's too many things, though. There's just so many things. I've just ended up, it's a standing joke that I've got no job, but I'm really busy because there's just so many things that are interesting and you can learn about and you just get into these nerdy rabbit holes and yeah, it, it's it's lovely to be able to do it. And every now and then you're kind of learning about these things and it, it turns into a you know opportunity to make some money as well, which is always nice. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a luxury, I'll be honest. Awesome. Brass Tax then, where a podcast talks about media and your your expertise there is very much in, in advertising. Mm-hmm. Advertising, obviously a real hot button topic at the moment. You know, viability of ads going forward for all kinds of different reasons, both technical, political... And, and kind of everything in between with real different problems kind of at at the large scale of publishers and and at the small scale and i know me and you've kind of had some talks about that in the past i'd love to love to flesh that out a little bit i think it's really interesting ads i think everyone let's face it no one loves ads i you know i owe a great deal 
to online advertising. But would I say I love ads? I don't block ads unless I'm on a site that's, you know, being particularly offensive in their implementation. I tend not to block ads. I do believe in, in the value exchange they provide, but I don't love them. They are unfortunately a necessity at the moment. We Absolutely. do not have a viable alternative yet. I think there's some great ideas, but I don't see that any actually really do support the industry. So all these problems we're facing, we've got to somehow solve them or come up with a new model. But it's always a hot button topic, isn't it, advertising, because there's this push-pull between, look, we need them at the moment, but, but nobody wants them. Yeah. Um, it's it's a tricky one, definitely, because I'm, I'm not anti-advertising, but I'm pro-privacy. So while I maybe don't block ads, I maybe will intentionally block things like trackers. And that sounds yeah. great until you realize you're still going to get the ads. They're just not going to be useful. <laughs> some would argue they aren't with the tracking but they're much more useful with the tracking involved yeah. and there's been a few kind of like high profile like ad changes and ad issues that have kind of come up in the last weeks as we so as we record twitter is currently melting down I'm not going to go much more into that other than to say a lot of brands appear to be pulling um, yeah. advertising from that but that but that thing kind of actually nicely brings me into one of the things mean you've talked about is the m- seeming movement of ad spend away from publishers and media organizations particularly small ones that don't necessarily have huge ad teams onto centralized platforms yeah like facebook and twitter social there's a there's a number of pressures there isn't there you know my 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 love has always been working with independent advertisers you know the, the small guys i could you know when i got in I, I moved into the web as a profession because it just absolutely fascinated me from day one. Just, just, I, I, you know, this is back in AOL days when I found that one button that suddenly you could go onto the big wide open wild west of the internet rather than, you know, the safe walled garden of, of AOL. And I just loved the, maybe not the chaos, but kind of the, just the, the, the creativity out on the web. And I'm, I'm still absolutely in love with the web today of how many years on it is. And when, particularly with the things that AdSense came along, you know, I think it was a real moment in kind of democratizing the web. It suddenly gave people the ability to monetize whatever crazy idea they wanted to put out there, which I, I think maybe some of the crazies become negative crazy over the years, but there's still, you know, if, if your passion is, I don't know, airfix models, if you want to put that up on the internet, you can do so and you can cover your costs and maybe make some money. And this is the bit I really love about the web even now. And I think there's a number of pressures making that really difficult. One is that shift in spend to the platforms. They're all trying to grab it. You know, certainly, you know, Facebook clearly has been the big one. People talk about Google, but I think at least Google has the mechanism in there to share a proportion of that and kind of enable the publisher side of it. Facebook very much shut that down. But I think that's continuing. I think we're, we're going to see it with TikTok. Yeah, there's some revenue share opportunities in there, but only if you're working in the platform, not greater you know, on the web. And that's going to be putting spend. You know, Apple, Apple are doing the same thing. A lot of spend is going to go, you know, into Apple as they expand their ad system. I can't imagine that's something they're going to be kind of sharing out to smaller publishers and giving them the mechanism there. So the shift to platform is a big part of it. But I don't think it's it's the only one. I think 
the ad systems have become increasingly complex. They're a lot harder for small publishers to manage. You know, my company, my old company existed because we, we bridged that gap. We would, you know, we would help smaller publishers work in this more technical space of, you know, earning more money through programmatic advertising. But there's a tax on that. You know, they have to pay us a share in order to do it. You know, I had a team, we had overheads, we had technologies that we had to build. And, you know, that was all coming out of a share from those. And you're finding that as the overhead, even for the middlemen companies increases, they're looking higher up the chain. Smaller publishers aren't actually even getting invited to work with companies like that or more. So the smaller guys are getting pushed out. Sure. I I think there's, sorry, Karen. I was was going to come back to one one thing there, I think it would be great to get your kind of quick overview on programmatic because I feel like a lot of people, me included, don't necessarily fully understand what it is or they have some idea and they're like, oh, actually, what is that? It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, I feel, and sounds overly fancy for what actually is probably a relatively straightforward thing. But it's one of those ones that's like clouded a lot. They kind of keep it oh, we're not really sure what that is. It's like algorithmic. It's like, oh, it's programmatic. Oh, it's algorithmic. If you don't want to explain it, you just say, oh, it's, does that make sense? Just Yeah, I know some no, of I think it does. I think it's it's one of those terms that can be used and thrown about in different ways. I think, you know, you know, any fast-moving industry, you get language that maybe doesn't have too defined a meaning. The big part for me, when I, with the type of programmatic I was working is, is there's advertisers bidding to reach an audience and, you know, they are setting prices and figuring it out on the fly. The systems are doing the work. We're not, there's not two people making a deal. You know, I want to get my brand on your website and I will pay you this price. Uh, instead, they're, they're paying an amount to reach an audience and they'll find that audience when they can. And it's being run by the platforms in between. And it's that, that technology layer which has become increasingly complex and increasingly expensive to run. And there's, it, there's rarely one person or one middleman involved. There's layer upon layer upon layer of it. Layer of it. And the, you know, these bid requests, these, these impressions get passed all the way along these chains of systems and then all the way back again. And a lot of the time, the publishers are having to work with multiple systems and firing them all, you know, firing them all off in parallel because it's the only way you can get closer to a fair price course Uh so is that something that might also be pre-header bidding and things like that was kind of also one of those things like used to hear about a lot and i think maybe has been wrapped into that term is that so so header bidding is a particular implementation so Ah, the idea is that a a simple version of programmatic advertising might be that we have one partner involved which generally means it will be google so a user turns up on the website we expose the impression to them and say what will you bid for this impression they know the content of the site they know you know what's on that page and what's around it but really importantly for the advertiser they also know something about that audience so this, so this is where we come into personalization cookies privacy mm-hmm. from an advertiser's point of view the more they know the more likely they are to bid strong when that matches their profile yep. but from a privacy point of view we might not necessarily want the advertiser to know too much so again one of those those push pulls so that would be you know, a simple idea. And then the advertisers bid to reach, you know, you as an audience member, wherever, whichever website they might find you on. They're, they're bidding a price to reach you and then they'll look for you across uh, across the ecosystem. Header bidding's a way of running 
several auctions like that at once. So rather than allowing one partner like Google to set the price, which if you've got one very dominant partner, might not be in the publisher's favour, just always letting Google set the price of every impression. Head of bidding allows you to run multiple auctions, find the winner of that, and then the normal setup would then be to offer Google the chance to beat the highest impression. So you would run, you, you would put it out to several SSPs, supply-side platforms. They would run internal auctions of their advertisers. The winning bid from each of those auctions is returned. You pick the winning one of those, and then you put it to Google and say, can you beat this by you know, a cent or more? So the idea is you're reaching a wider pool and you're using the demand across that to either get a better price than Google would pay or force Google to pay a fairer price, depending on how you look at it. And it's those multiple auctions, which is why, you know, I, I, I say, you know, so from a privacy point of view, that means whatever information, you know, your impression, your your presence on that website is being shared with all those systems. Um, yeah. Why the head of bidding's, you know, not great because that's data being shared across of a wider thing. But obviously there's, there's an impact from that in terms of performance for the user as well, in terms of the impact on site speed. It sounds very incredibly complicated. So, I mean, it's it's difficult enough to do, like, matching on, like, this user, show them this ad kind of based on, like, broad categories to then have, you know, in your own, say, ad manager, be like, okay, well, we have you know, eight or nine, 10, 20, 100, 120, however many thousand line items, say, that are competing for that if you're running the most simple version, to then have that be running against several possible you know, add exchanges to be like, what's the best you can do here? Then come back and can someone else beat it? It just seems very wasteful. <laughs> it's incredibly wasteful. It's not a system any sane person would design today. It it very much came out of, you know, the need, you know, head of bidding in particular, the, the, the demand for that was that publishers didn't feel they were getting a fair price from for instance, Google. Sure. But, you know, the old system would be a waterfall. You'd offer it to one exchange. You might put a floor price in place and say, you know, will you buy this at a minimum of this price? And if you won't take it, I'll offer it to someone else with a slightly lower floor. Still awful for performance, <laughs> possibly worse for performance, but actually not very effective in terms of yield. So head of bidding is just a way of sort of doing that uh, in parallel. But yeah, it is incredibly wasteful. We're running multiple auctions and there's a lot of people, I think when Head of Bidden first came about, the trend became, well, how many how many partners can I offer it to? And you'd yeah. see people putting like 20, 30 bid requests out. I think most people are a little bit more sensible with that because just on a practical basis, there becomes a point where you're not getting any benefit from adding more partners and it is slowing things down. It is taking more resource. Of course. Um, you know, it all runs client side as well. You're making the user bear a lot of that load yeah. so it's yeah it's, it's not a free option to add more partners in and you know the ad, some of the ads you get back in these you know bidding or bitter setups and programmaticness are not necessarily good ads not that they're not like attractive and like useful ads but from a performance perspective like we've had ads come back that are bigger in page weight than the actual site itself because they've been so poorly like optimized so we're like working away to get a site to load as quickly as possible get yeah. you know in the modern parlance get a good core web vitals and then you're going to load 10 megabytes of ad payload for a single ad 
and you might have six on the page and the whole thing crumbles. Um, Picking the partners to work with is is really vital. And and again, this is something that maybe doesn't help smaller publishers. You know, smaller publishers don't have the opportunity to be as selective to some extent to work with who will accept them. Not because there's anything wrong with their inventory, but it, it just doesn't make sense for a big SSP to manage a small account. Cool. It just doesn't scale for them. The better SSPs, the supply side platforms, these app partners, are quite good at enforcing you know, the, the requirements of what can be in a creative. But as you come down the chain, you know, I, I, there's certainly names I won't mention, but could, who I know that if you run their ads, you're going to get, you know, nefarious redirects and pop-ups that are unexpected and like some high-load ads as well. And the, the problem with programmatic is where if you're booking a direct campaign, you know who you're de- dealing with and you might have, I don't know, a dozen, maybe you've got 50 partners you're working with programmatic advertising, you know, on an open auction system, you're inviting any advertiser in the world to bid, yeah. you know, other than any you specifically block. So you can't do those manual checks. You can't check every creative before it's served because on a busy website, there could be hundreds of new advertisers appearing every minute. So you have to trust in the partners that you're working with. Absolutely. And I want to bring that back to something you said. So for programmatic to work really well, to get a good price, the bidder has to know an awful lot about the user that is viewing that content. And that's obviously a huge, huge privacy concern, both as something that, you know, you're handing out to, you know, at least to whatever is coordinating your ad bidding, but probably more likely out to each individual provider to be like, oh, what is this view worth to me? And obviously, not necessarily obviously, but in most cases, smaller publishers aren't going to have the same data. They're not going to be able to generate that data. And really, nor should they be able to. That's my data to give. But for these groups to survive, they have to kind of give in and do the best they can to get get that data, get the information from the user to pass Mm -hmm. up. But this gets more complicated as we look at upcoming cookie changes that are coming in the browser, you know, third-party cookies versus first-party cookies, different changes changes in that. Do you have any thoughts, feelings oh. you can share there? <laughs> well, so many. Right, where do we start? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll offer a slightly different angle on the first bit. You said you, you have to have a lot of data in order to get a high bid. Not necessarily. That's usually the case. So in order for us to get a high bid for an advertiser, they need to have confidence that that impression has value. That will often mean they want to know more about the user, both from a fraud, fraud prevention angle. You know, they need to know you are a human. You are where you are reporting to be from. You are, you know, you are there for genuine reasons, not just to clock up impressions and, you know, make money for somebody. All these things exist, but also just from a targeting perspective. The other way of looking at it is context. You know, if if I have a very valuable placement, you know, if, if I have an ad in a high value place, a transactional point in time, then that would also give advertisers confidence. But then we're back down to this, that's tricky for small publishers. You know, if I am, oh, I don't know, if I'm money supermarket in the UK and I know I want to put a banner up at the time where people are getting a house insurance quote, then actually the advertisers have got a pretty good idea that a large proportion of the people seeing that ad are going to, be in a particular frame of mind for a small publisher where the advertiser doesn't know the placements 
that's when data becomes more valuable. But I think this, you know, all the systems have really become about buying audience. You know, marketers have had this wealth of data for quite a long time. So all the systems have been built around bidding on audience no matter where they are. And the idea of bidding for context, I think, has shrunk. You know, cookies are the way most of that data is shared. I think cookies have been getting a bad rap beyond what they deserve. The problem isn't cookies. The problem is privacy. You know, there's some there's some players in the world who are very well served by making the argument about cookies. Let's say you're a technology firm who had a very large captive audience who didn't need cookies because you're always logged in. Then make it about cookies because all you're doing is strengthening your position while damaging everybody else's. You know, we certainly seen that as you know, Google's going to be in a super strong position. All the big platforms, you know, Apple's new, you know, Apple's ever-growing ad system is is based entirely on the data they know. They don't need a third-party cookie because your data's on their system already. So again, it's it's back down to these these things become harder for small publishers. All these things become very pro-platform, and you know, I think. Whenever changes are made, you know, GDPR, a lot of people talked about that being kind of anti-Google legislation. Look at who the big winner is. You know, they, they're in a perfect position to make more money from it and have that. I, let's, I, I think privacy, data, great conversations. Cookie, a little bit of a red herring. I think it's a little bit of a let's make people look in one direction while we build lots of possibly worse things in another direction. Yeah. Yeah, the cookies one is is a weird one because it's it's such an easy kind of thing to get caught up in. Oh, what are our cookies? What are our cookies? But cookies are a fundamental part of how the web works. There are good cookies yeah. and bad cookies. And I don't think the public, oh, I don't think all the public understand that. You know, I I have I have had conversations with people visiting websites complaining that you know complaining that they have to log in every time they visit because they are blocking every cookie and clearing every cookie and you you try to have the conversation of look this is a first party essential functioning cookie yes but cookies are evil and i think like many arguments in in the world today things have boiled down to such simple terms that they become meaningless yeah yeah, yeah absolutely that's great i mean what do you think are the alternatives that are coming? So if it's getting harder and harder to use, you know, an on-device identifier, say, yeah. to say to avoid the avoid saying cookies, yeah. say an on-device persistent fire that can be used to watch where you go around the web. What what are what are the alternatives that are going to come up here? Do you think? I think there are a lot of alternatives surfacing and. You know, as I've come out of the space, I'll be honest, I've lost interest in tracking the number of them. Of you know, even Google's list of alternative approaches is just it's just getting nauseatingly dull. And all that's happening is the tech space is just looking for another way to track people in a way that invades privacy without using cookies. You know, all the unified ID, I don't I, I don't think any of the unified ID solutions really solve the problem. They're just using means other than cookies to do exactly the same thing that everyone's been criticised for for a long time. So I think we need to be having, if we if we're going to solve privacy and advertising issues in a, in a sensible way, there needs to be a wholesale reinvention of it. Um, 
Do I know that? If I knew it, I probably wouldn't share it on a podcast because I'd be raking in quite a lot of investor money about them. You'd be a very um, rich man. Yeah, this this things I would like to see. So, for instance, you know, if there's one thing I hate more than advertising, no, I don't hate advertising. If there's one thing that annoys me more than badly placed advertising, it's badly made file uh, paywalls. Mm. I might even say that entire sentence again if that's all right with you, Stuart. Because yeah, I really feel like I had to find out. If there's one thing that annoys me more than badly implemented advertising on a site, it's badly implemented paywalls. I, you know, I, in just paywalls in general. I like consuming news from viable sources. I like to get my news from multiple sources. However, I also don't want to pay a subscription for every site. I consume news from, you know, I really like reading FT.com stories. That's quite a chunky subscription. Add in your New York Times, chuck in a Guardian, you want to support them, even though theirs is free. You know, maybe for some balance, I want to telegraph. I don't know, who knows? Suddenly, that's quite an investment in the amount of news I read. I don't want to do that. I would like a kind of a, a snack a snacking paywall service where i can put so many credits in a month and all these big news services sign up to it and they can just take their share as i use it i would love to see that but i don't know who's going to get them all talking and and, and and combine it i think we need some radically different approaches i think that like that approach is it sounds perfect but it has been tried so many times yeah. over and over again, and it never, never takes off. I mean, we look at today, I suppose the closest, I think of two immediate ones is like Apple News, you know, Apple News Plus, where you can yeah. you know, have that and you pay 10 or a month or whatever it is, and you get access to, you know, however many hundreds of publications. But are they the ones that you wanted? Yeah. And I mean, I've heard that most publications are keeping the real good stuff for their own subscribers because they're only getting a share of that subscription fee and they're not getting any data back to be like, all right, yeah, we can market to this user based on on this. So it's of super limited value to them. The other way this has gone is the microtransactions, a dirty word. Um, Which is, I mean, one of the things that I'm not a big proponent of blockchain and kind of these payments but it seems like one of the ways where that is most useful or most likely to be successful is you load up load up a wallet and there are services that do this and are currently trying to get it off the ground use the web payments api to bill your wallet in a particular currency to enable access to that single page but what is the value of that page that single view i think there's a huge misalignment between what a reader wants to pay for a view and what the publication wants for a view. You know, I've seen publications, all right, we want to pound a one monetary unit for you to view yeah. this page. And the reader's like, mm, I was thinking more like 5p or 10p. And I think then that's that's a much wider, broader question about like, how do how do we as a society actually value journalism? Yeah. Um, and that's a huge, like fundamental, like, what are we doing? Like we are cutting newsrooms, cutting journalists. Like who's who's out there in the UK at least covering what's happening in, you know, like school elections, school boards, like, oh, so-and-so is doing this. And like, that would be mind-numbing work for journalists. But ultimately on that democratic local level, that's super important. I know there's a lot of Nest, Nesta funding, UK Research and Development Government Fund for like media and democracy a couple of years back. And yeah. it almost all went to that kind of AI for like, how do we cover 
and generate content automatically from an input to reduce the cost of production. I've definitely seen solutions where data points like yeah. like court hearings. Yeah. Uh, that used to always be a thing covered in papers. Really, who's going to pay for a report to sit there? That's exactly, you know, that's the sort of thing. GPT-3 could fill that in quite nicely. You definitely want to keep a human in the loop. I can imagine that going horribly wrong if you just let AI generate whatever it wants about any court case. I certainly wouldn't want to just uh, let that go on fully automated on my publication. Absolutely. Uh, but I mean, sports, there's lots of data, tons of data around sports. And I've heard of, I don't know if it's GPT-3 or other AI systems being deployed to write textual summaries of football matches and rugby yeah. matches because it's if they get it wrong it's not the end of the world it's not libelous like it yeah. might be in a quirky i i did some i don't know if you're aware of this so i i did a talk recently about the, the use of ai oh really yeah so i did this talk of writing seo and my talk was mostly sharing some data some original data that i collected and I, I, basically, I basically, I did three data sets. So the first part was because I worked with a lot of agencies, I was looking at how agencies already use uh, AI tech systems. And that was just a survey of agency owners. The second part was user perceptions, where I asked the general public whether they would trust content written by AI. And I've tried with different types of content. That was quite interesting. So that, that, uh, the, the third piece was the most interesting to me whereas i i had some text written by human authors and some text written by ai and i had people without any mention of ai i just asked people to rate see these articles i asked them to rate them in, in a number of ways and never I just split test them just a blind split test on ai versus human content so on the perception thing, it was really interesting if you ask people you ask the, the great british public if they would trust content written by ai uh, only 18% of people say yes. So overwhelmingly, no, they don't. But then I asked the same thing by different topics. Sports was the, the piece of co- the type of content that people were most accepting for AI to write, which I think oh, I'd, have to ch- I'd have to check the numbers. Maybe we can link to the research yeah, or something. From the, we can get it. That the right yeah, it was, it was still not very high. But, you know, rather than 18%, I think sport came in at around about 25% of people with something like that. Things like finance and healthcare, you as you would imagine, people weren't so sure about. But the lowest was news. People really didn't want AI writing news. And if we look at all the, the conversations around news manipulation and fake news, completely understand why. But the lowest of all was film reviews. And I found it amazing, but the British public were more likely to trust an AI to give them financial or health advice than to what they would watch on Netflix that evening. I think it's something around we 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 think these systems can't be creative or can't understand those types of things. I don't know, but yeah, I I just found it all fascinating, absolutely fascinating, completely nerded out on this data. That's... For- crazy so i'm trying to wrap my head around why you would trust it <laughs> for uh, finance over i suppose finance you look at it and go like this is numbers I'll put number yeah. into computer computer come out with yes reason that's how i see it yeah. yeah films i suppose it's more like well i like this and i like that how could the how, computer how you... possibly know what i will like in a film and not that's very strange and then, then, then when we put into that third piece of data where we turn it to blind test, the most interesting part, of course, is what people say they will trust is completely different to what they do actually trust 
when they don't know about it. So I think a lot of it is, as you say, it's about perceptions. Maybe we're getting used to the idea of AI writing sports information and financial information, but the idea of it recommending a film for us is just a little bit out there at the moment. So these things might all change. That's strange. I suppose one of the things is automated recommendations are so difficult. Like if you've ever used Yelp or Foursquare back in the day, what it guessed you might like through whatever rudimentary machine learning they were using was never, never good. Yeah. I wonder if there's still a holdover from, from that of people like, oh, it's a recommendation. I can't. I suppose we'll see it now. I don't know what your Netflix recommendations look like, but I, 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 I feel like, like a lot of platforms like Netflix will just recommend the thing that everyone else is watching. And I watch some weird stuff. And it's really not very good at recommending what I want to watch. So maybe maybe it's that. Maybe people, as you say, people see evidence of the, the, the engines that are being used now and assume that's the best they can do. Whereas actually they are probably doing a very good job, but they're not there to help us. They're there to help the platforms that are Absolutely. using it. So you got to think like these things are fairly new to the world and kind of what they're doing. And these technologies generally follow I can't remember the specific name of a curve, but like an S curve where they start fairly slowly, rapidly accelerate and then tail off. And I think the thing that worries me is I don't know where we are on that curve. Like, is this just the start? And are they going to get a lot better at pretending yeah. to be human, if not accurate? And what is the metric? Is is the metric that's being judged? Like, how can a person tell this is AI or is it actually correct? Yeah. So, and, okay. So you, you've heard it right at the beginning of this, this podcast. We, we said about me following shiny things and indulging my magpie incident and completely by chance we touched on it. So this is, this is the big shiny thing that I, I kind of lost six months of my life to diving into, which makes me an absolute beginner. I'm not preparing to be an expert in it. I'm just a, a, a slightly better informed absolute beginner. I think, the speed of change in the AI space, AI, it's not AI, but in, in the, the content generation space, we'll call it, the speed of change in there is just unlike anything I can remember. It's so, so fast. The example I gave is most of the AI text we see today is being produced by an algorithm called GPT-3, which, as you can imagine, is the third version of, of this of this system. No one talked about GPT-2 because it was a bit crap. In terms of the leap of capability, the kind of the, how, how powerful these systems were, and again, I'm trying to remember the numbers from, from the talk I did. It was something like five or 600 times. Uh, no. Do you know what? Can I pull up a slide and give you some Absolutely. sensible numbers? Because I just kind of, if we're getting into data, I'd like to just get it right. If you're happy to share it as well, we'll throw it in the show notes. Yeah, the, absolutely. You know what? I, I did. I went so deep into this and I spent thousands on the bloody research. I don't even know why now. I just I get a bit of a bee in my bonnet, so it's quite nice to get some more use out of it. Great. Let me pull up my slides. I'll share yeah, I'll share that I'll share the deck I mean, with you. If you're if you're interested in the progress of this, I mean I remember so we have got Dali. Dali 2, I should say, doing the rounds at the moment um, as kind of one of these image generators. I vaguely remember Dali 1 and it being a okay. bit of a, like, a wet fart where everyone's like, oh, that's really interesting. And even before that, the Google 
version of it, which I want to say was called Deep Minds, but I can't remember yeah. entirely. But it would yeah. create, you would give it a prompt and it would create these nightmare images. Do you remember yeah. for a few years yeah, back? One, wasn't there? I can't remember the other one. Yeah, Charlotte, I'll show you. Look, we're getting really distracted. <laughs> Cole, oh, gonna be, where, where are they going? Where are they going with this? I'll show you. It's fine. So, look, it's my goal with the... these things is like, see, we'll start in one place and we'll see where we yeah. end up. Oh, here uh, we go. I ended up doing all the images using Mid Journey. Oh, great. Well, just because, again, I was just nerding out. So this is that thing I said about, oh, no, that, that wasn't that one. I will come back to the point so that, well, that was the blind test one. Where's that one with the views perceptions? There we go. That was the, would you would you trust? Would you trust content? You know, so website content, 18% of the public said they would trust it. Film reviews, 6%. Yeah. Honestly, the world's mad. But this was the one I was looking for here. So yes, speed of change. Let me let me talk about that with the numbers in front of me. So so no one no one talked about GPT two because you know it was clever, but in terms of the output, no one was no one was buying it. It, it was a bit crap. When GPT three came along, suddenly there was this step change in the ability of these systems, and people started getting really excited and talking about it. So we measure the power of these systems in parameter counts. So the jump from GPT-2 to GPT-3 was GPT-3 was 177 times more powerful. And it was that big jump that suddenly got everyone excited. Well, GPT-4 is due for release, like, imminently. Like, it could be even before you end. I suspect not, the way these things go. But GPT-4 is going to be 571 times more powerful than what we have with GPT-3. Okay. So we've got another jump coming but the jump is kind of three times larger than the previous jump. So, so the speed of change is incredible. Yeah. So what are these numbers? 1.5 billion, 175 billion, and 100 trillion, like one, so 175 billion what? To kind so of, this is parameter count, right. kind of like the number of, in, in my simplistic terms, the number of variables it can work through while it's figuring out what to say next. Right. I, I look at these systems as like text prediction albums. Uh, algorithms really yeah. other than being ai's so if you imagine like how many options they have to kind of work with. of course sure yeah. someone more technical than me will now put in a comment that i'm completely wrong but that's my simplistic take on how the parameter count of these systems turns into the quality of the output so yeah that speed of change no absolutely i think we are literally just at the start of this and we can see it in you know the other bit that's i find really interesting is the image generation thing so and what we're seeing we're seeing it in there we, we were talking about you know dali 2 if we look at the examples of what's now happening with video being generated in the same way the complexity of that uh, is incredible you know Absolutely. your mind boggles what's going to happen with deep fake yeah. well this is the the video thing is actually like what gives me pause to be like where on this curve are we because whenever dali 2 started doing the rounds along with stable diffusion and i can't remember what the others are called yeah. everyone's like well that's that's fine that's just a static image they're not going to be able to generate you know, video and that's where most content is and yeah. then it was a time scale measured in weeks before yeah. meta had put out their video generation prompt to be a system and someone else had released one like very quickly after that as well that's the thing I'm like, and there there are swathes of YouTube videos and Vimeo yeah. videos that are AI generated, where the AI like GPT three or something has written a script. Some other machine learning process has t- 
taken and mapped that to effectively mocap, run that against the model, like a 3D model, and then recorded that output as the face. And then yeah. you mentioned deepfakes layered on top of that. There's a whole... There it's, are content it's, farms. It's fascinating and frightening. I, I've, got, I've got a real car crash fascination with it. Yeah. I, you know, it, I, I really do. The you know, I, I got interested because I was I was seeing these systems used to produce crap website copy at yeah. scale. So it's just people producing vast yeah. scale very quickly and trying to monetize it for our services. You know, that's literally what what hooked my interest in it. You know, there's another trend we can talk about in the advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why why isn't there trust in the advertising ecosystem? Well. Here's another reason not to. But yeah, the the, the whole the whole thing I, I find fascinating and frightening in in probably equal measures. Yeah, it's it's a it's a scary thing. I know there's a lot of like panic, I suppose, in like the creative space of like things like the image generators replacing designers and artists. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, but photography didn't replace entirely portraiture. It invented a new Thing that happened sure yeah. there's less portraiture than there would have otherwise been but it made that access to more people and i hope that this will be a similar thing that it will create jumping off points and stuff like that but general purpose ai or the large-scale deployment of it for misinformation is our worry and i think a very scary thing yeah, well, me, this, this is whole circle, isn't it? This is why we need to support proper journalism. You know, if people are going to get their news through social media, and we know social media is going to be influenced, and if we suddenly go, well, okay, rather than a troll farm tucked away somewhere with people banging out messages, why don't we plug that into a system that's going to generate those messages yeah. and maybe put some nice convincing photos alongside them and maybe have a newsreel that's been generated to support that, that are people are going to believe. The scale of disinformation that can come out is is just going to be frightening. And, you know, trusted news, you know, trusted news sources is, is the way to counter that. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that journalism is doing particularly well at the moment. I feel, I don't know, maybe I we all have our own biases. Maybe it's mine. I feel like you know, independent news is becoming less of a thing. I must not all down to funding, but it's it's going to be vitally important. Otherwise, you know, what do we do? We're not going to give up on truth, hopefully. But yeah, some would say maybe we already have. <laughs> yeah, I think some people definitely have, haven't they? <laughs> Post truth era, aren't we? Yeah, I, I blame I blame Star Wars because now everyone is. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was unexpected. <laughs> it's like every time, every time I hear it, like the fake news thing come up in my head i just have like obi-wan kenobi go or whoever said it in the film go from a certain point of view and i'm like <laughs> oh that's just like that's it like that's now a thing but to bring it i suppose bring it back full circle do you feel like we're gonna see a lot of ai applied to advertising both in i know i i'm gonna come back from ai and say they're machine learning you know generating yeah. hundreds of thousands of variations of an advert to run at the lowest possible quality mark all the way through to guessing and algorithmically picking interest groups for a user before they are there themselves. I think 
I've seen it a little bit of this kind of, if you think of tick, a lot of people have gotten put down the path of having diagnoses for things like ADHD and autism because TikTok saw them and put them into groups for recommendations before they knew it was a thing. And I wonder if we're going to start seeing that happen in some of the ads, if we really get that kind of machine learning applied or are we past that? Machine learning is becoming so accessible. We're going to see it applied to everything and and, and at scale. The bits that stick will be the bits that turn into money for people. You know, in terms of generating text for text ads, that's something that, you know, GPT-3 is already being used for. Don't think the aim, it it might be the outcome, but the aim generally isn't to produce the lowest possible quality. It's to get the highest possible result. But yeah, if you take a human out the loop, then, you know, who knows? Maybe the weirdest things get the highest click-through rates or or whatever. But there's some really clever systems out there doing that already. And likewise, the machine learning and looking at the results. So, you know, partly for the, you know, generating the text, but but looking at the results and then optimising, you know, great stuff for machine learning. But I think we're going to see the same certainly for images, you know, in, in taking the graphic creatives of an ad and at least producing variants. You know, I think the the image AIs that we have at the moment are largely novelty. Yeah. They're really good fun. You can play around, you can laugh when they mess it up and be vaguely impressed when they get it right. But they're not really directable. If I ask if I ask any of them to produce a series of images on the topic or variations of this, they're not so good. I think Dali 2 is moving a bit more in that way. With the in-painting, you can change kind of elements. But when we start to be able to, when the interfaces, not just the capabilities of the system, but when the interfaces improve to suit you know, the developing use cases, we're definitely going to see the same thing applied to ad creators. So then we've got a point where, do you know what, we can generate variations on copy and variations on imagery, and we can do this at scale. We can test and see what works. We can put the results into more machine learning and get the perfect ad, but perfect being defined by whatever we define at the beginning of it. And I think that becomes, you know, that becomes the challenge, doesn't it? It's setting the right, the right metrics to optimise to. But yeah, we're gonna, it's going to be everywhere, isn't it? Just keep an eye on the time. This has gone everywhere. I'm delighted. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much. If someone wants to find out more about you, where, where can they go? Where can they find out? The best place is either find me on LinkedIn, Matt with one T, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-W-T, or at mattbennett.com. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, please subscribe. Scale is available in all usual podcast places. Even better, uh, if you could leave us a review, that really helps us. If you're interested in finding out more about me or Powered by Coffee, you can find us on social media. And again, in all the usual places, links are in the show notes. Scale is currently going to come out every two weeks and we will see you then.